Hello and welcome to the UFO Thinker podcast. My name is Frank. Let's get cracking. So today is actually going to be part three of the um, what is the extent of the cover up on UFOs, and um, we're just going to get straight into the big heavyweight topic of Roswell. So obviously you can't talk about crash retrievals and things without talking about Roswell because it's the the big daddy of all UFO crash cases, crash retrieval cases. And we're just going to dive straight in because obviously if you've not heard parts one and two, it might be worth you checking those out. The first one uh, basically was going into all the various different elements of government cover-ups throughout the years. Obviously, um, Roswell was kind of the birth of that, but it's more talking about the specific projects like Project Blue Book and things which have actually been put into place to sort of hush-hush the whole thing and to convince the public that there's nothing going on. And the first episode was kind of all about that. And then the second one um, was about specifically the Wilson Davis memo, which is a leaked document which supposedly is a bit of a smoking gun and refers to um, craft and and materials from craft that's been recovered and covered up by the government. And I think it's what a lot of people would uh, say is is the best evidence for the existence of these things. It's kind of one of the big pointers that kind of seems to make all the pieces of the puzzle fit to show that it actually is the case and uh, I also talked about in that second part the uh, Trinity San Antonio UFO um, crash and an alleged uh, crash retrieval and and today as I say we're going to continue along that path with the big one Roswell so obviously this actually took place only a, a few years after the Trinity case and what was kind of interesting about the Trinity case is it happened uh, actually before Roswell and it actually wasn't a saucer at all the uh, the Trinity case it was an avocado shaped craft as I talked about there but the Roswell incident in 1947 was the actual crash of, of a flying saucer an actual classic saucer and obviously that took place at a ranch near Roswell, New Mexico, the United States, obviously. So the whole thing kind of starts around the 14th of June, 1947. And there's a gentleman named William... Now, I don't actually know how you're supposed to pronounce his surname, so I apologise if I'm saying this wrong. I've generally only read things in books about his name, and I just can't remember how you're supposed to pronounce it. So I'm going to say Brazel. So when a gentleman named William Brazel, I guess it could be Brazel, Brazel as well, but I'm going to go Brazel. So when a gentleman named William Brazel and his eight-year-old son saw a large amount of debris scattered across a ranch, 85 miles north of Roswell. This was reported on by the Roswell Record newspaper on on July the 9th. So that's obviously quite considerably later than when it was initially the debris was initially seen um, by William. But it was reported by the Roswell Record newspaper on July the 9th, uh, and where William basically described a large amount of rubber strips a tin foil and quite a tough type of papery material which 
he initially kind of passed off as a wrecked weather balloon which apparently was quite a common occurrence in the area so just to summarize there it was initially seen the debris on around about the 14th of june but then it actually didn't get um reported to the authorities and then subsequently the statement released and put into the news till quite a few weeks later on july the 9th so in the um the days following that initial discovery of the debris which again he passed off initially as uh, debris from a balloon which he'd seen before and he just thought oh, it's one of them it is what it is just forget about it and in between that initial discovery to actually then going back to further investigate the wreckage there apparently was numerous sightings of strange objects in the sky in the area including dan wilmot who along with his wife on the night of the 2nd of July, saw a, a bright oval-shaped light in the sky, approximately 20 feet in diameter. So that's July the 2nd there, and bear in mind he saw this on the 14th of June, so that's a couple of weeks after. So it kind of, you know, it sort of suggests that there's other things going on, even after what would probably would have been the initial uh, crash. And... By July the 4th, which is obviously Independence Day in the United States, Brazel had took his wife and two children to investigate the debris on the ranch after becoming curious due to the reports of UFOs in the area. So upon closer inspection of the debris, he concluded that it was not like any other weather balloon wreckage that he'd seen before. And the following day after July the 4th, which is July the 5th, he reported the wreckage to the local sheriff who himself reported the matter to the Roswell Army Airfield and Major Jesse Marcel, Lieutenant Colonel Sheridan Cavett and Master Sergeant Bill Rackett, who those three individuals there accompanied Brazel back to the site to investigate it. So apparently as well, which I'm going to come back to later on, what he actually did, so I've heard, is he initially reported it to the Weather Bureau, who, based on the descriptions that he gave, said that it actually wasn't a balloon at all and that they referred him to actually report it to the sheriff, which is quite an interesting point because of the whole weather balloon um, description and so on the actual weather bureau are in charge of controlling these objects, the weather balloons and things, they told him that it's probably not a weather balloon and to actually report it to the sheriff, which he then did. And then the sheriff actually reported it to the Roswell Army Airfield, as I just mentioned. And then those three individuals uh, went to investigate. Now, apparently they recovered the debris and tried to figure out what it was. And uh, much of it was quite similar to aluminium foil, and it was extremely lightweight and there was a large amount of the material uh, present in the area. I've, I've seen a quote that it was covering 180 metres, but that's a bit unclear. Are we talking about 180 metres squared? Because that would be an absolutely enormous amount of footage. Um, are we talking these like strips and if you laid them out end to end, it would be 180 metres? I'm not exactly too sure on the clarity there. Um, and I think it is pretty hard to find 
the actual amount of debris but I think it's safe to say from what most of the people who were there at the time have said that it was a pretty significant amount of debris um, but again the exact amount probably never going to know. So I've also seen reports that it was covered in strange symbols resembling hieroglyphs again it's it's pretty difficult to actually there's no photographs of it but we're going off word of mouth here and various people's accounts and i think it's the the actual children of the people involved later on have come out and said that um actually, actually uh, jesse marcel uh, took the debris on 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 his truck and the the his child actually found you know saw the, the truck and he claims and claimed later on in interviews and things that he saw strange symbols resembling a little bit like egyptian hieroglyphics so and uh, that basically after the initial investigation there by those three individuals from the military um jesse marcel loaded it onto the back of his truck and took it away and that was basically the last that brazel saw of the wreckage as immediately after it was loaded onto the truck and taken away, apparently taken to the Res Roswell uh, Air Force Base. So on July the 8th, 1947, the, um, the Roswell Army Air Force Base Public Information Officer, Walter Hout, actually uh, released a statement press release statement saying that personnel from the field's 509th operations group had recovered a flying disc which had landed on a ranch near Roswell and uh, various news outlets reported the events on on July the 8th and some of the quotes from the actual reporting at the time I'll just read a few out because I think it's quite important so one here is action was immediately taken and the disc was picked up at the rancher's home. It was inspected at the Roswell Army Airfield and subsequently loaned by Major Marcel to higher headquarters. And uh, one article in this particular one is actually from the Sacramento Bee from July the 8th. And you can actually find the news, the actual original newspaper cutting online for this one as well. Uh, and it's a direct quote here, quote, the Army Air Forces here announced a flying disc has been found on a ranch near Roswell and is in possession of the Army, unquote. So it was pretty, pretty straightforward to say that the army at that stage were calling this thing a flying disc and they'd announced it as such and told the press about that and there was a bit of a frenzy in the media about it now i've heard quite a few reports about bodies being recovered as well not so much reports but just people's opinions and theories but i personally think that that's a little bit doubtful as brazel himself never actually reported anything of the sort and the military didn't announce anything like that either. And, and what, what can actually be said for certain is that the flying disc was announced. Now, if the initial report said that we found a flying disc and its inhabitants, then obviously, you know, it'd be a different story. And you have to think, kind of common sense tells me that if, if they were willing to go out and say that we found a flying disc, if there was any inhabitants there, they surely would have mentioned that because that's massively significant. And because there was no actual mention, you know, then it kind of suggests to me that there was no bodies found with that initial wreckage that was taken away. 
So that suggests to me that, uh, as well, that at least part of a craft was actually intact because they said that it was a flying disc. So, or, or you could possibly say that once all of the wreckage was examined, it became obvious that it was originally in the form of a disc. But I mean, why else would that particular terminology be used? I, I suppose it could be argued that there was hysteria in that, you know, that particular time there was a bit of hysteria following the Kenneth Arnold's um, recent, at the time, UFO sightings, and that could have kind of left the thought of saucers and flying discs and in the forefront of people's minds. But I personally find that a little bit doubtful, given the seriousness of the process of, you know, putting together a military report and the fact that there were three individuals there. It wasn't just one guy, it was three of them. And I think they would have discussed it amongst the three of them and the idea that all three of them must have arrived at this conclusion that it was a disc, it kind of leaves me doubtful that, you know, saucer madness was the reason for the report. Of course, that's open to each individual's you know interpretation but i personally think that it's highly likely that the wreckage was highly suggestive of a disc shape because it just doesn't make much sense that they would have specifically mentioned a disc unless it actually did seem to be a disc so i've read information which suggests that the alien craft kind of explanation was not actually even really being considered at the time it wasn't like oh we found an alien spaceship it was just that you know we found a disc a flying disc and i think the initial thinking by the three people was more along the lines of um it could be some nazi secret weapon or it could be some secret russian technology and it wasn't really referred to in, in many of the news reports that i've read to whilst doing the research from this there wasn't really any mention of an, an extraterrestrial spacecraft or anything of that nature it was just a flying disc and obviously there was massive amounts of speculation as to nazi secret weapons and, and secret russian technology at the time and you know, you've got to think that perhaps they just thought it was some kind of bizarre technology from from leftover from you know the Second World War and some pockets of resistance of, of Nazis hanging around still. Maybe they had access to some of this stuff, or who knows? But it doesn't really suggest to me that it was specifically being talked about as an alien craft right at the beginning there. And then I think. The, the press reports that were actually based on the army's initial statement understandably caused some serious chaos and a large amount of public interest and perhaps then they realized that what they were saying about flying disc you know could actually be referring to aliens and kind of changed tact a little bit and in the meantime the wreckage itself had been taken to the Fort Worth Air Force Base in Texas and was actually under the supervision of uh, General uh, Roger Ramey. And uh, a very short time later, after coming under the super supervision of um, Roger Ramey, only a, a few hours apparently later, a second statement was issued with the explanation that it was in fact a weather balloon and there were photographs sent out to newspapers etc with pictures of, of Ramey holding a weather balloon. Now a couple of interesting notes here are the testimonies of Bill Brazel and Jesse Marcel Jr who spoke about their experiences 
in the years that followed. So Bill Brazel is actually the son of William Brazel, the, the, the guy who found the wreckage initially. And Jesse Marcel Jr. is actually the son of, of Jesse Marcel. And Jesse actually said, this is Jesse Marcel Jr., uh, said that one night he saw the debris on his father's truck, which is what I was mentioning earlier on, and he had a closer look. And it was apparently... The material on there was kind of like metal foil, but he suggests that it was not made of metal. Apparently, it was could not be burned or torn, and when it was scrunched up, it would re- return to its original form, which has kind of been referred to as uh, memory metal. The Roswell memory metal uh, kind of comes from from those kind of uh, those, those uh, testimony uh, accounts there, and. You have to you have to bear in mind that this is quite similar to the material that was reported by the witnesses of the Trinity case, which I did in the previous episode. Now, again, there's a lot of different explanations as to why that could be, which I'm not going to go into for now. But I just thought it was worth pointing out that this is a very similar material that has been reported. Um, so, and also noted by Jesse Junior as well, were the, the hieroglyphic type symbols carved into its surface now um, bill brazel son of, of william brazel described the profound impact that the discovery of the object had on his father describing him as a, a different man after the discovery and in an interview with charles Belitz and william moore bill said quote he had he said they had told him to shut up because it was the patriotic thing to do, unquote. And Bill also described how he was locked in a room and interrogated over a period of several days and was very upset by the way that he was treated. And William Brazel never actually explained in much more depth and I think took a lot of the secrets with him to, to the grave. Um, so I just thought they were interesting to mention because that's the... The, you know the, the the sons of the a couple of the major players in this case and their experiences uh, from from what they remember at the time and moving on from that then so there were apparently also some bits of wreckage actually left at the ranch but according to again bill brazel jr three military officials came a couple of years after the initial event to ensure that there was no wreckage remaining at the site and apparently he'd actually collected some of the bits of this material uh, since the initial happening. And then he's actually had all of that material then confiscated by uh, these individuals who, who came back to ensure that all of it was taken away. Yeah, I have to say, reading about that, it kind of strikes me as a bit weird that they would leave it a couple of years after the initial event. You would think that, I mean, it, again, it could be hazy recollections from, you know, you know, a young, someone who's very young at the time or, you know, quite young at the time, something that's been remembered later on that the time involved may have been different. But um, from what I, from what I've read, it apparently was a couple of years after the initial event. So that did seem a little bit odd. But again... When people are remembering events that happened a long time ago, sometimes details can get a bit mixed up, and it doesn't necessarily mean there's any foul play involved. It could just be natural, isn't it? You know, everybody remembers things slightly hazy. So I'm not really one to throw out a whole case just on a tiny little, uh, relatively insignificant piece of data like that. But anyway, so moving on from there, I just thought that was worth mentioning. 
because they've clearly shown some kind of an interest in getting rid of the rest of the whenever that happened to be that they went back you know to clear up the rest of the bits of of uh, wreckage that may have remained they've clearly shown an interest in getting rid of the rest of it and why would the if it did actually turn out to be something like a weather balloon or something along the lines of that you know why would they have gone back to get the the remaining bits that were left it doesn't really make any sense if it's just something that's not a big deal but anyway moving on so i would say personally just going back to the bodies thing for a second that there's not really any convincing evidence to suggest the retrieval of actual bodies so i i wouldn't rule it out entirely but i would say personally that it's a bit dubious so the the only real things that really point towards the actual the existence of bodies being retrieved is a bit of a dubious case involving a, a, a nearby mortician named Glenn Dennis who worked at the, the Ballard Funeral Home and they actually had a contract to provide mortuary services for the Roswell Army Airfield. And Glenn Dennis stated in a 1991 interview with Stanton Friedman that one summer... One summer day in 1947, he received a phone call from the Roswell Army Airfield during which he was asked, what's the smallest size of coffin you can provide? This would seem to suggest that there were some small alien bodies that required coffins, um, seemingly confirmed by him also being asked how to prepare a body or how they would go about preparing a body if it had been exposed to toxic elements and been left in the sun for a few days so obviously that just from that if you take it at face value would suggest that there there were some bodies there and you know it ties in with the overall story of the crash happened and then was left unattended for a number of days and eventually was reported and then picked up by the army um, and glenn dennis went on to say that he had to attend the airfield the same day which apparently did you know fairly right it wasn't a one-off thing he'd often get asked to go down there to attend you know an injury or something of that nature and he, he did actually get called in on the same day as the phone call to attend an injury and upon entering the building he saw a large amount of material spread across the floor which resembled aluminium foil so he also apparently saw a nurse who was a, f a friend of his or an acquaintance of his who warned him to leave immediately or if anyone found him in there he would be killed and things like that and he was then quite shortly after that he was escorted out of the building by um, two military officers and then his nurse friend uh, went on to contact him the following day uh, to explain that she'd actually seen three small alien bodies brought into the base and they were apparently childlike, no hair, small indentations for ears, deep eyes, and no fingers, only like a, a tentacle type of thing instead of a hand. And uh, she informed him that the bodies were actually found a mile or two away from the crash site, um, and which obviously would explain why the bodies were perhaps not mentioned on the initial retrieval of the, the crash debris and apparently two of the bodies were were badly damaged and one was in relatively intact condition and uh, shortly after this the nurse friend 
was actually transferred to England to a, to an airbase in England. And then when Glenn Dennis actually tried to contact her, he received back a note simply saying deceased. So obviously, you know, would suggest that she's been taken away and and, and taken care of, uh, in inverted commas. So that's that's the the I think the the main point of evidence that people say points towards the existence of the bodies. And um, my problems with that are, first of all, and this always struck me. It's kind of even more so having really dug into this uh, case a little bit more for this. Uh, purposes of this podcast but i remember hearing about this years ago and thinking the same but first of all why would they put them in a coffin it just doesn't make any sense to me that um, and again you know i always open to hearing other people so there might be something i've not considered so if you think differently and you think that there's more information or better information that points towards bodies let me know you know, by now you probably all know about my Twitter. It's at UFO Thinker. But if you've not been in touch with me on there for any reason, give us a shout and let me know if you've got any information to add. But it just seems very strange to me that if you discover alien bodies, you'd stick them in a coffin and put them in the ground. That's the last thing that you would do if you discovered an alien body. Like, first of all, if they're actually dead already and you've discovered a body, why would you bury it? Surely the thing that they would do is try and preserve it so that they could analyse it to the fullest extent possible. I suppose you could argue that perhaps they've got loads of bodies because you know they deal with this stuff all the time and they've got hundreds of them, so they're just trying to bury them as quick as they can. But if even if that was the case, like there's a massive cover-up and they're dealing with regular crashes of, of flying saucers and they've got so many bodies that they don't really need to keep them to study... Even if that was the case, surely you would cremate them or something. You wouldn't just bury them under the ground because if that makes them retrievable evidence that somebody else could dig up at some stage if they ever got wind that the bodies were there. So for me personally, that whole thing of um, the coffins being ordered from the, march, the, the mortuary and things like that just doesn't, just doesn't add up and it sounds you know, not very compelling in my opinion. The nurse story also doesn't really check out. Apparently, Dennis said her name was Naomi Self. and I think he was reluctant to give the name, eventually gave the name. And then when people looked into that and actually found the names of all of the nurses at the base, the name didn't actually appear. So there was a database of, of people who were at present at that moment in time. And there were only five female nurses. None of them were called Naomi and none of them moved to England. So he then admit, admitted that it was a fake name, but refused to provide the real name. So... Again, all seems a bit dodgy. First of all, if the person is supposedly deceased, why would you be worried about providing the real name? You know, it doesn't seem to... I just... There's something dodgy there. It just hits me instinctively as being a bit a bit dodgy. So, very significantly, Jesse Marcel himself, in interviews, actually said that it was not a balloon and that a cover-up had taken place. But interestingly enough, he says that quite a few times, Jesse Marcel said, despite the fact that he believes it was not a balloon and that there was a cover-up, he said that there was no bodies, according to his understanding of the situation. Although, again, depending on how you wanted to look at it, depending on what side of this you're coming from, you could say that the bodies weren't actually discovered at any point when he was there, because they may have been discovered days later or even days earlier. 
um, miles away from the crash site. So I guess again, it all depends, you know, how you how you approach it. But a couple of quotes from Jesse Marcel because obviously he, as I've kind of I was getting at there, he has changed his 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 story initially kind of went along with what was what was being put put across in the, the statements from the army and, and basically went along with the cover-up but then years later completely changed his story and and the direct quote is um quote nothing made on this earth unquote was how he described the material at later dates in interviews and another direct quote here from jesse marcel quote they wanted some comments from me but I wasn't at liberty to do that. So all I could do is keep my mouth shut. And General Ramey is the one who discussed and told the newspapers, I mean the newsman, what it was, and to forget about it. It is nothing more than a weather observation balloon. Of course, we both knew differently, unquote. So, again, that, that absolutely confirms that it was a cover-up that was done at the time. What was being covered up is not exactly 100% clear there, but he does say very clearly that it was nothing made on this earth, in his opinion. So it sounds to me like he was of the opinion that it was a flying craft and that it was an extraterrestrial craft, no less, that was actually not made on this earth. And what he saw at the time very clearly pointed towards that. And he he's very much of the assertion that there are no bodies but that this thing is an extraterrestrial spacecraft there's no other way to interpret what he's saying there in my opinion now let's fast forward so in 1994 so this is way down the line so decades later the united states air force published a report claiming that the crashed object was a nuclear test surveillance balloon from Project Mogul. And at this point in time, they admitted that what was initially reported on and the initial statements that were released to the press claiming that it was a weather balloon were in fact a cover-up. So there's no questions about that. It's factual. The, the, the actual United States, Air, United States Air Force themselves have confirmed that what they initially said was false and it was specifically a yarn being being told to cover up from what was actually going on. But they claim in 1994 that what was actually going on was a high-altitude nuclear test surveillance balloon. And the, the idea of the, the balloons used in Project Mogul was actually to put a very, very high-altitude balloon up with very sensitive listening uh, audio monitoring uh, equipment attached to the balloon which would sense very very subtle um, vibrations uh, to, to be able to figure out when the russians were doing nuclear tests and missile tests and things like that and project mogul as far as i can find out was a real project that really did this with balloons so you know it's it again depends how you want to look at it it could well be that this was some kind of advanced balloon at the time and that what they're actually saying the United States Air Force there in 1994 is correct but we know for a fact that they already covered up the initial thing that happened how do we know this isn't just another cover-up of the cover-up you know the seed of doubts there isn't it once you know that the 
the the United States Air Force are willing to completely put out false information to cover up from what really went on. You can't really take the word for it when they do that again a second time decades later, can you? You know what I mean? So another Air Force report published in 1997, so that's a few years later, claimed that stories of alien bodies probably stemmed from test dummies being dropped at high altitude because I believe it was a a typical thing to do at the time to attach mannequins and test dummies to the various different balloons and high altitude um, vehicles and, and things that they were putting up into the air um, and the it's possible that the explanation for the things that were witnessed by the nurse in that base could have actually been some kind of mannequins or dummies or something like that but that is kind of separate to the initial actual thing and it could well be that even the mention by the air force of alien bodies is to kind of throw out a bit of a red herring to detract people from the fact that they are covering up what really went on even all these decades later so that's basically the final line that was put out by the united states air force 1994 they said it was project mogul nuclear surveillance balloons 1997 they said that the alien bodies were probably just mannequins so as i say i'm i'm kind of leaning towards maybe the alien bodies actually were mannequins but i think the project mogul balloon thing is not necessarily what really went on there so let's get to some conclusions so the supposed project mogul balloon was made from what i can find out the actual project mogul balloon was made of polyethylene plastic which i find it a bit hard to imagine that that could be misidentified by all of the various people involved as a, met a metallic unusual material so polyethylene plastic is not just you know similar to aluminium foil you know and it would be pretty difficult in my opinion to arrive at the conclusion of a disc based on you know plastic sheeting doesn't really add up to me that it also seems to me that the amount of debris is not really indicative of a weather balloon or even a project mogul balloon which are much larger than a weather balloon would have been but even the project mogul balloon would have been quite small in comparison to the amount of wreckage that was allegedly recovered Again, just going off the accounts, it seems like it was enough to fill an entire truck. William Brazel had recovered weather balloons regularly, or had at least seen uh, weather balloons, uh, wreckage and debris regularly. And there's two different ways to look at that. So maybe it was just a weird weather balloon or a Project Mogul balloon, and that's it was a little bit different to the weather balloons that he'd seen in the area, and that, that explains it. But because we do know that weather balloons were a common occurrence in that area and sometimes they came down and he had seen them. But maybe it was not a weather balloon at all. It wasn't a Project Mogul balloon. And his experience of having seen so many weather balloons would kind of strengthen the argument that it was none of those things. And also his reaction to witnessing the wreckage and not being the same after suggests that it probably wasn't a balloon now you could argue that he wasn't the same as a result of the interrogation or was it from what he'd actually just witnessed when he saw the actual wreckage itself it's a little bit difficult to say but 
the actual overall reaction that he had to finding that wreckage doesn't suggest to me that it was a weather balloon. And also, as I said, Jesse Marcel, a lot of these other people involved, they, you know, years after the fact, have confirmed that it definitely didn't seem like a weather balloon to them, and they were being told to say that it was. So, apparently, there was also no equipment or apparatus attached to the actual balloon, which is another thing that the the initial witnesses thought that it wasn't a weather balloon or any kind of observation balloon. And that definitely would have been the case if it was a Project Mogul balloon, because the whole point of that balloon was to rise up to high altitudes and detect faint sound waves. So it would have had to have a, a decent amount of actual equipment attached especially back in those days because equipment was quite clunky back then it wasn't like it is now you know the the technology that you can fit in an iphone now would have been a couple of suitcases full of technology back then so i can't imagine that they would have completely missed that unless it became detached and then the actual wreckage of the balloon you know um just drifted along for miles and miles i guess that is one way of looking at it but it just doesn't really seem to add up to me that and brazel didn't gain from any of his 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 accounts of the accounts that he gave he never really um you know received any benefit at all why would he insist on on telling his story the way that he did other than to get the truth of what he saw out to to the public he was interrogated and intimidated by the air force it would have been a lot easier for him to simply back down accept the air force's explanation and live a quiet life and get on with it but he didn't and that is that, that is a point that you can't really miss out as well when you're thinking about this and the fact is the initial explanation given by the military was not true it was indeed a cover-up as admitted by the government in 1994 and even that alone is proof beyond any doubt that there was a detailed cover-up of the Roswell case and it should make you question other cases as well outside of this one. The government are or at least were willing to lie about things, completely fabricate explanations to to get the you know to stop the public from getting wind of what they're actually doing. That they're willing to be you know untruthful in terms of actually being able to cover up the things that they don't really want to be truthful about and in this particular case many decades had gone by before they eventually admitted the cover-up the question is was the explanation of what took place the explanation they gave in 1994 was that really what happened or another cover-up and that is a question that everybody has to make up their own mind about Personally, I think there's a big reason why Roswell is one of the most famous cases in the UFO world. I think it's a fascinating case and it's well worth taking seriously. And, you know, it it could simply be viewed as evidence that the government are willing to fabricate complicated explanations to cover up secret projects and that people read too much into that, you know. But even if that is the case you should definitely take what the government say about explanations about unusual things going on with a pinch of salt. Or you could look at it as one of the strongest cases of potential extraterrestrial or non-human craft having landed, crashed, and then being recovered by the military. So a little bit of speculation then. This has been mostly factual so far, but let's just have a little bit of a think about 
speculating about what's actually gone on there and what could be the causes and things like that. So as I said, I personally think the alien bodies thing is dubious. So while I can't completely rule it out because I wasn't there, didn't see what actually went on, you know, in, in the particular time that it happened, as many people didn't, obviously. But it's just a gut feeling that I get about the bodies part of this as not being accurate. First of all, the burying thing makes no sense, as I mentioned earlier. Also, if an advanced race came here, why would they crash other than gifting? There's a lot of people talk about the gifting hypothesis that, you know, if an advanced craft was really so advanced, would it really crash when it when it arrived at Earth? If they could, you know, travel across the universe and do things that we can't even explain, why would they all of a sudden arrive at, you know, the United States and crash into the ground? It kind of seems a little bit odd. However, on the other hand of that, all technology occasionally fails, or at least our, you know, our examples do. You know, you can have the the most, you know, if you look at SpaceX, you know, they've got unbelievably advanced technology, and sometimes it goes wrong, you know, or, or you could use a lot of other examples as well. Um, you know, Formula One, for example, the absolute pinnacle of you know automobile technology and sometimes stuff goes wrong you know nothing is completely immune from having technological problems it, it can happen but if you so one way to explain that is the gifting hypothesis that the actual craft are intentionally crashed to be able to give us some kind of hints as to things that we could do perhaps with their technology or something like that now if they actually gifted the this this thing that the disc to humans surely it wouldn't really be a suicide mission they're not going to put some of their own people you know for want of a better word in this craft and then plow it into the ground and kill their own people are they it doesn't really make sense to me that they would randomly crash other than the freak chance of an accident happening i guess it is possible i think it's more likely that they would gift the craft but if they did that they're not going to put their own people on it. So I think the way I tend to think of it, if I'm going to speculate about what it could be if it actually was an extraterrestrial craft, is it could be an unmanned craft. And I think that's much more logical and likely, personally. It could have been some kind of a sensor, a probe, perhaps even launched from some ancient civilization millions of years ago, and it just so happened to crash land all this time later. Again, I don't think the chances of something just drifting randomly through space from um, an artifact of you know an ancient civilization that, that existed somewhere in the universe millions of years ago that just so happened to land on the earth i think is a very slim i mean the probabilities there it's, it's not not very likely at all considering the vastness of space but it could potentially have been launched as either a gift device to actually drop off to us here or some kind of messaging device or even some kind of sensor or a probe and perhaps the ancient civilization somewhere out there in the universe that launched it towards us perhaps by the time it actually arrived on the earth all this time later perhaps the civilization it came from is long gone perhaps they were controlling it on its trajectory towards the earth and then but at the point in time when the, the, the origin civilization actually were no longer uh, in existence, perhaps they had no means of controlling it because they were gone and the thing just crashed and it wasn't meant to crash. You know, it's, it's a thought. Maybe 
they sent the craft here as a gift and in the time that it took to get here they had long long since ceased to exist themselves also if the craft did crash i'm of the opinion personally that it it probably would be more likely to, they would probably be more likely to come and recover the bodies you know never leave a man behind and all that you know if it is indeed some kind of interdimensional craft or perhaps some others who actually reside here on earth under the oceans or something surely they wouldn't have just left the bodies there for days you know before the crash was eventually recovered it, it's kind of hard to imagine a possibility of under ocean others you know just leaving a crashed craft there with bodies for days in fact even the, the craft really but again you could use the gifting hypothesis there so maybe the others who live under the oceans gifted this craft into the, the desert for us to find but if they did that they're not just going to leave their own bodies of their own people there just to die in the desert are they they would probably come and get them or at least would remove the bodies or something so i think in the event of a crashed craft they would have recovered it pretty rapidly unless indeed it was a gifting thing in which case again i think it would have been unmanned so we also know that they used to strap test dummies to balloons and aircraft in general in this era and in that area uh, as i mentioned earlier if there was some unrelated weather balloon testing in the area perhaps what actually happened there was glenn dennis heard through a nurse somewhere that there were mangled bodies but they were just simply badly damaged mannequins or dummies or whatever and in the hysteria following the military announcing the crash disc i can see how you would think that you know you're walking along you've read about all this stuff in the news you glimpse through a tent and you see some mangled bodies on the floor and you may think that it is aliens you know that that's kind of the thinking that i have with it and you know i'm just i'm just going to finish off though with a reading of uh, an interview here um and the interview is actually an interview with the legendary researcher stanton friedman now this is actually taken from a book uh, called evidence of extraterrestrials by warren agius who was actually originally uh, recently on the uh, that ufo podcast uh, he did an interview on there. Funnily enough, I actually bought the book a couple of weeks before the interview was announced. Um, it was I was buying another book, and it just popped up as a recommended on Amazon, so I thought I'd buy it. And then, it, lo and behold, he was turned up on the uh, That UFO podcast, which was really interesting. But um, it's a great book, um, Evidence of Extraterrestrials, really good. And it's, it's actually quite a handy sort of like reference guide and, and you can kind of read it like that that's the way i uh, tend to use it not necessarily that you read it from beginning to end it's kind of set out into chapters with all the different various different cases so i've used this book a little bit for research and um, for the podcast as well as a couple of other books and some online sources and things like that um but it's really handy really good book and i recommend that you go and buy it um warren's obviously put well, quite a bit of work into it and you can get it for about I think it was about 12 13 quid it's definitely if you if you you know type of person who likes books on ufos definitely worth a dabble so let me just read out this uh this interview or at least some of this interview so question then you were the first researcher to investigate the roswell case what do you think genuinely happened did an interplanetary flying object crash or was it a balloon answer and so this is Stanton Friedman's answer now. I personally think 
that the 509th Composite Bomb Group, stationed at Roswell Army Airfield, recovered the wreckage of a crashed alien spacecraft, as well as several alien bodies. So the next question was, do you think the government is in possession of any extraterrestrials or ET technology? And Stanton Friedman's answer here again, I think they've had a living alien for a while, and most certainly had wreckage from alien spacecrafts. I do not know whether they've learned how to duplicate the technology they were in possession of, but the Wright brothers could not have duplicated a 747 or a V2 rocket. Now, I thought that was some quite interesting answers because obviously Stanton Friedman is somebody who's done a lot more research than I have, dedicated a large part of his life to researching this particular case. And, you know, he is pretty convinced there that there were actually not only was this a, a legit extraterrestrial craft, but he's convinced that there actually are bodies, which is a bit of a different conclusion to what I've reached. But then again... There may be many people listening to this podcast who have reached slightly different conclusions as well. And I'm certainly not going to say that that's a lot of nonsense. It's worth bearing in mind that he's really looked into this thing and he really thought there were bodies. But one thing that he thinks for sure there is that the government is in possession of something, which is pretty much the the stage where I'm at with it. I don't think necessarily that you can say without a doubt that there was definitely bodies involved in the Roswell incident. But... I, I think it's almost certain that the government have got something, whether that be little fragments, whether that be little fragments that they've managed to recreate into a disc. Um, very difficult to say definitively. So I thought that would be an interesting little bit to kind of uh, end off on the on the Roswell bits there. But let's just delve into a couple of other ones as well, because there's been quite a few people asking about certain cases to do with crash retrievals. And I just wanted to touch on a few others so that people don't think I'm missing them out. So first of all, there's the, the Virginia UFO incident which evolved a series of events in 1996 where various citizens of Virginia, Brazil, reported seeing um, actually one or more actual creatures and at least one UFO sighting as well. And these stories were quite hyped up um, in the media and, and a lot of people see them as quite a, a, a convincing case Um because of the actual the beings themselves were, were actually sighted quite clearly uh, and supposedly they were actually then captured by the Brazilian military. Now, this is not a case that I'm going to dwell on too much. It's one that I've heard bits about here and there and from what I've heard, I'm quite surprised that this case is not taken more seriously because it does sound absolutely fascinating. But I'm actually going to hold off on this one because um, there's currently... Um, a, an actual full-length film being made by James Fox, who is the guy who made the Phenomenon movie, and uh, it was absolutely fantastic. Um, uh, director, who, who, if you've not seen the Phenomenon movie, I mean, I, I can't imagine that you would be listening to this podcast if you've not seen the Phenomenon movie. But it's absolutely fantastic, um, and the tone of the way that he investigates things is 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 just the kind of thing that I like. It's entertaining, but it's very scientific and it's very um, well put together and things are not, you know, there's no fake footage just thrown in there for the sake of it. Um, and 
you know, it's the kind of thing that I like to see being being done. Things going in the right direction, you know, when you see things like that uh, happening. And, and basically, um, James has mentioned a few times in interviews recently, and he's posting quite regular updates on his Facebook, which I don't actually have a Facebook, so I don't see the full extent of these, but uh, I've seen a few people sharing some of the pictures and things. He's actually there in Brazil at the moment doing... Uh, the research and, and going through the process of actually making his next film which is um, from what I understand all about the Virginia UFO incident so I'm going to leave that one to James because he knows what he's doing and, and I'm really excited to see that when it eventually comes out and I will be doing an episode um, summarising the film, a bit of a review reaction type of episode when that actually comes out um, so I think we're going to leave the Virginia one there for now it seems like a really fascinating case not one that i'm that familiar with but what better way to be able to get familiar with it than seeing james's upcoming film so that's the plan for that one but it sounds very intriguing you know it's kind of the brazilian roswell in a lot of ways from the sounds of things you know an actual craft creatures involved and quite a few eyewitnesses there and the actual creatures themselves or the um, materials involved were actually later you know taken into the custody of the brazilian military so that sounds really interesting Another one, this is actually kind of breaking the timeline side of things a little bit because this one is going all the way back to the early 1900s, the Tunguska event. So this is one that's um, an interesting one because it's not actually a crash retrieval as such. It's it's overwhelmingly likely to be some kind of um, asteroid, meteor, something like that. But there's still a couple of intriguing little things that I thought would be interesting to go into. So we'll just quickly have a dabble. So um, the Tunguska event was a massive explosion that occurred near... And bear with me on these pronunciations, guys, because these are not easy to say. Uh, a massive explosion that can uh, occurred near the Podkamenia Tunguska River in Yeniseysk. Um in Russia <laughs> on the morning of June the 30th 1908 it was actually not until about a decade later that any kind of actual scientific analysis of the region took place because it was a very very isolated area and there was a lot of political upheaval at that particular time in the 1910s but in uh, 1921 the Russian mineralogist Leonid Kulik led a team of um people to the to the particular river basin uh, to conduct a survey for the um, soviet academy of sciences and i believe the only way that he managed to actually be able to get to go and analyze what had gone on there was um to claim that there was some kind of metal deposits in the area that they may be able to harvest some of the uh, fragments from the meteor and use it for, for certain materials and things and, and because there was just not any interest in going doing it but he managed to eventually get out there in 1921 and although they never actually visited the the central blast area um, many of the locals in the area actually um, gave accounts to uh, Kulik and uh, it caused him to believe that the explosion probably was caused by a giant meteorite impact. Uh, when he eventually returned from his expedition, he managed to fund uh, a further expedition based on the project of salvaging this me the potential meteoric 
iron uh, from the, the object itself. And uh, the leading scientific explanation for what happened there, for this enormous explosion that took place, um, which I've read is something in the region of they, they say that it was estimated of 12 megatons, which is absolutely enormous, and it's, it's the equivalent of a, you know, a very, very powerful nuclear explosion taking place. But the, the leading scientific explanation for that explosion is the, the airburst of an asteroid about 6 to 10 kilometers above the surface of the Earth. And there's been a lot of theories, and it's quite a complicated case, um, made quite intriguing by the fact that there's no impact crater only a massive blast area so some have suggested that it may be a comet made of ice dust or whatever as comets are which could have uh, disintegrated several kilometers above the surface of the earth and just kind of vaporized you know off the explosion some have suggested that it was an asteroid type object um, which could have been coming in on a kind of sideways trajectory, sort of bounced off the Earth's atmosphere, the glancing um, kind of um, hypothesis, which is the thing would have come in sort of sideways, briefly come very close to the Earth, and then been deflected away, kind of carrying on on its trajectory out of the Earth's um, atmosphere again. And there are even some suggestions and this is where it gets kind of intriguing, that it may have been something even stranger than that. In the village of um, Nizhny Karolinsk, the peasants who lived there reportedly saw a, a, a strange body in the sky shining brightly with a bluish light moving vertically downwards for about 10 minutes. And apparently the body that was witnessed was cylindrical in the form of a pipe shape and as it approached the ground it appeared to disintegrate forming a huge black cloud and causing a sound not like thunder but more reminiscent of artillery fire and the villagers were obviously understandably terrified and thought the end of the world was approaching and, and a forked, forked tongue of flame shot out through the black cloud that had been created now Obviously, what actually happened to cause the Tunguska explosion was definitely extraterrestrial. There's not really any any uh, question about that. But that's extraterrestrial in the literal definition. So it's something that was not from this planet that's come flying through space and landed on the planet. That doesn't mean that it's an extraterrestrial intelligence or anything like that. It could just be a big rock or a big, you know, a big ball of dust and water or whatever. Uh, dust and ice, you know. But obviously this is a case from a long, long time ago with no detailed analysis done at the time and the really intriguing elements that I'm talking about rely on sort of hazy witness testimonies recorded a decade later and obviously the human memory is not very reliable, susceptible to remembering events slightly different to what could have actually occurred. But nevertheless, I thought it was an interesting one to mention because we can confirm that it's 100% or at least very close to 100% an extraterrestrial object but not necessarily one controlled by any non-human intelligences and uh, i actually read about this book uh, this particular case in a book when i was a kid and uh, ryan sprague actually did uh, a podcast episode on the tunguska event a while ago and you know whether or not it's overwhelmingly likely i think in this case that it was an asteroid or a meteor but 
it just always reminds me that, you know, we are a part of this universe. You know, we're not just completely isolated. Occasionally, there's bits of things floating around in the sky and we have no idea they're there and they can just drop into this little blue oasis of a planet that we call our our own at any time. We have no control over this. And whether or not it was an asteroid, a meteor or ET craft that happens to drop into our um, planet at any point, it makes me remember that we're a part of this universe, you know, we're not separate to everything else that's going on, whether that be a meteor or an asteroid or whether it actually be a craft from some kind of other intelligence way out there somewhere. We're a part of this whole thing. And I think occasionally, you know, this whole thing that we're a part of throws something our way, not literally like consciously throw, but, you know, the universe itself, we're part of that. And we should remember that. I think it's important we remember that and how fragile our earthly home actually is in the grand scheme of things. There's so many amazing things to discover about the universe, but there's also some some very potentially dangerous things like massive rocks flying through space. You know, there was Oumuamua, who I did a podcast on a, a little while ago, which could potentially be... Um, and you know some kind of remnant of a, an alien civilization it could be a probe it could be a massive rock hurtling through space but these things are out there and whatever they are it's important that we know as much as we can about them whatever they turn out to be so i thought that was a bit of a, a bit of a different one to throw in there if we're talking about things crashing into the earth that was one that's i think overwhelmingly likely not to be anything alien but still quite interesting so conclusion so far then so i started off this this little series obviously the intent was to do an hour-long episode on crash retrievals that didn't that didn't really go to plan did it it eventually turned into a part two and now this is part three and obviously there's gonna have to be a part four because there's a few bits that i've not got to yet so there's a lot of information out there about this kind of stuff and I can't just gloss over certain cases. I got to this one and the, the plan was, yeah, I do a quick summary of Roswell. You can't just do a quick summary of Roswell because it's such a, a vital case to the UFO topic and it's the one that's most widely known in outside of the UFO kind of community as well. If you mention Roswell to somebody, they'll know exactly what you mean, whether or not they're interested in UFOs or not. So I thought it was worth going into because, you know, the nuances are important as well. One little nuance can can completely change how you look at a case. So to go a little bit further there as well, then, there's actually a lot of high quality research that's already been done into Roswell and some of these older cases, which I'm going to continue to look into. And I encourage other people to do as well. Don't take my word for anything you know do your own research and hopefully you know there might be one or two people who've never even heard of roswell i find it a bit unlikely but you know maybe you've heard of the name but you didn't really know any of the details maybe there was a few things that you know if i can if i can shed a bit of light on some of these cases you know with new information that i find in the future i'll of course update you know the podcast with whatever i find i'd obviously myself you know heard all of these cases before but researching it for the podcast just allows me to really dig in, kind of 
structure the timeline of events in a way and give me a bit of an understanding of, of what actually went on and I've heard so many especially with a case like Roswell you hear bits of this bits of that and these things you're hearing little fragments of information it might be years apart so sometimes the bigger picture can get hard to really wrap your head around so hopefully hopefully you've enjoyed listening and maybe there's some new things that you've learned perhaps you know you'd already heard about and forgotten a couple of the elements as was the case for myself with many of these cases or if you're listening and you're already well up on the cases maybe a lot more so than me perhaps it's still interesting in some way to kind of follow my journey through the available information and see if i arrive at the same conclusions that you have you know the fact is I come at this trying to look at both sides, or you know, all sides really, because there's not just two sides. There's there's many sides to some of this stuff, and you know, there's a multitude of different ways you could look at these cases, and there's a multitude of different ways people do look at these cases. So if you hear me trying to kind of debunk myself as I go along here, you know, I'm debunking a, or attempting to debunk a case that I'm fascinated by. You know, it might seem a bit contradictory, but. But that's, that's why, because I can't let myself go down the road of believing BS, you know? So I have to play devil's advocate with myself and say, yeah, you think this and you're concluding this, but why? You know, what about this? What about the fact that other people say this? And if you really throw all of the kind of other angles of looking at a case at the case and at the end of it, you still kind of think, yeah, I think something was going on there. That's how you know you've really got something interesting. And at the end of the day, what I'm finding here is there's a lot of compelling evidence from individuals who are credible, reasonable people who have held positions of responsibility within our society or within societies all over the world who are absolutely convinced that these things really took place. And there can be no doubt by this stage that government cover-ups have also taken place. The government have admitted this. And on top of that, we live in a different era now. The government have now openly admitted that there are UFOs flying around in the skies and they have no idea what they are. Only this week we, we learned that they're planning on setting up a permanent UFO office in, in America to find out more about this stuff. In light of this and knowing that the government have covered up significant cases in the past and lied to the public by saying there's no interest in UFOs, laughed at it, ridiculed the whole subject, whilst at the same time as that, actively researching it and ploughing millions of dollars into it behind closed doors. I don't know about you, but a bit of a picture starts to emerge there about what's really going on with this stuff. UFOs are 100% real. That is a fact. But the very nature of what I just said there is a weird one, isn't it? Because UFOs are unidentified. We don't know what they are. So what they are and how much the government knows about them is the real mystery now. Times have changed since even 10 years ago. We now have the government, NASA, governments all around the world, and also well-funded civilian organisations headed by you know top scientists. And all of these actively researching ufos you know as i said in the previous episode the materials research is particularly interesting to me because it could remove any doubt whatsoever once we get answers on that imagine what can be achieved if we truly actually have access to these materials and they can be properly researched 
And I like to think, you know, maybe somewhat optimistically that, that times are changing. At the end of the day, the government is a massive organisation with some goodies and some baddies, you know, to put it simply. And I think the goodies are kind of turning the tide, you know, in a large part thanks to Luella Zondo, Chris Mellon and the dozens now of others that are coming out from, you know, from behind the shadows, you know, think about what the next year or so could potentially bring in terms of new people stepping into the limelight, you know, and the results of these materials research, you know, there's so many angles that new information could come from at the moment. It's a really exciting time. And let's, let's, you know, let's keep digging. Let's keep pushing for our governments to actually treat us like adults and share more of what they know. We need transparency. And if we get that, that's how we get answers, isn't it? And on top of that, can you imagine how a race between, say, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, and people like that, the best minds across the world, you know, if they're all involved in actually trying to understand what these materials are that, that potentially exist and the technology behind it, and, and it could be a new golden age for humanity, you know, or it could be something sinister, you know, and maybe that's something to go into once I've rounded off on the, the actual extent of the cover-up series and, and crash retrievals and stuff. You know, what is the reason for the cover-up? Because there may be some profound questions that we have to ask ourselves that some very limited number of people know. We've definitely heard that hinted for certain people in the in the UFO world. But for now, I'm just going to leave it right there. And we're going to conclude a bit more formally kind of thing in the next and final part of the series. So I hope you've enjoyed listening to this. And uh, don't forget, you can get at me on uh, on Twitter, at UFO Thinker. be great to hear from you if you've got anything to add to what we've been talking about there. But until next time, stay curious, take it easy, and I'll catch you in the next episode. UFO Thinker Podcast. Podcast.